do appreciate the presence of each one today. We do have some, several visitors today. Some of our regular folks are out of town, no doubt visiting family over the holidays. And we have some family worshiping with us today. Some who grew up here uh, in their youth and have come back to be with family. And that's, that's exciting. It's good to see people who uh, were once here but have gone on as adults make their way in the world, but come back, and it's good to see them. Again, we have some who are traveling through, and uh, we appreciate them stopping by. So many people don't do that. Well, how commendable that is, just to take a few minutes in their travel schedule to, to stop in and to worship, and our prayers are with them as they continue on their way, as they would be with everyone who's traveling, that they might travel safely. You know, I'm, I'm awfully glad Jesus was born into the world, aren't you? I'm, I'm really glad. What, a, what a, uh, an occasion of joy that was and an occasion of joy that is today to remember that. And the New Testament highlights the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter, those early chapters of Luke as well, uh, highlight the birth of Jesus. But the emphasis in the New Testament was really on the death of Jesus, isn't it? As important as the birth of Jesus was, it's, it's the death of Jesus that's emphasized. His death atones for our sins. In His death, He is the propitiation for our sins. His blood pays the price for our redemption. And so the great emphasis is on the death of Jesus, and we never want the the, the, the birth of Jesus to overshadow the importance of the death of Jesus. And so this morning we've come together as the early disciples did to honor and to remember and proclaim the death of Christ. And we've done that in, in the Lord's Supper this morning as we've uh, rem remembered His body nailed to the cross, His blood shed on our behalf. And so we hope that each one of us has uh, participated in the Lord's Supper and spirit and in truth and has been built up by it. Been preaching a, a series of sermons on Sunday morning that are designed to make us think about how we think. Uh, I suppose human beings are unique in that way. Uh, our, our pets can think, but I don't know that they can think about how they think, and, but we can do that. And so we can make adjustments in our thought and we can direct our thoughts and we can make corrections in our thoughts. And so what I've been trying to do lately is just get us to think about how we think, how we think about the world around us and how we think about our lives and our place in the world and what we're trying to accomplish. We've been trying to encourage each other to think biblically and to shape our thinking by Scripture. And so as we see events in the world, we, we want to look at them through the prism of Scripture, through the lens of Christ, and evaluate those things and make a judgment about what we see in light of what the Scriptures have to say. Now, not everybody thinks this way in the world, of course. Not everybody thinks biblically. Not everybody thinks according to Scripture. In fact, it seems that the tide is moving in a different direction, that people are thinking less scripturally and biblically than they ever have in our, in our culture anyway. And we believe that's a mistake. The Scriptures are God's Word. And so Jesus prayed to His Father, Sanctify them, His disciples. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And so we're going to find truth in Scripture. We're going to find truth in God's Word. And that will show us how we ought to think. 
about the world around us and about our place, our lives within it. Now last week we talked a little bit about sexuality and gender. And that's a huge topic in our world today. The Bible does have something to say about that. And so we want to know what the Bible says so that we can evaluate what's being said and what's being promoted in our world and either accept it or reject it based on what God's Word has to say. So we're going to think biblically about those things and think scripturally about those things. We're not going to rehash that today. But we are going to talk about a subject that is of great importance and about which people's thinking has changed in my lifetime. Sure, certainly in the last couple of generations, tremendous changes have been made in the way people think about the family. And so we're going to talk about the family today and try to uh, shape our thinking, at least, at least begin to think biblically about the family. You can't cover all of that in 20 minutes, but uh, we'll try at least get us, get us started in that direction. You know, what was at one time quite common regarding the family is now the exception. In 1960, 73% of children lived with two parents in their first marriage. But that's changed, hasn't it? That's the minority now Today, not to, well, 2014 at least, 46% of children lived with parents in their first marriage. Others lived with remarried parents or not married parents or single parents. And a small percentage, less than 1%, uh, don't live with a parent. And so thinking about what family consists of, what, what had, had to change it, changes has gone through, really that tremendous Again, want to think biblically about these things and scripturally about these things. And so, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Now, we have good precedent for doing that. We're on, on solid ground when we say let's go back to the beginning. Because when Jesus was asked a question in Mark chapter 10 about family, that's what He did. He went back to the beginning and made some observations about how things were and were meant to be as God had arranged them. Now a lot of people today think that the family unit, the family structure, really is the result of a long process of de development, developmental changes, or sort of evolutionary changes. And so as men and women had children, well then eventually they decided to commit to each other, and, and that was mutually beneficial, and so that arrangement a man and a woman living together and having children, that arrangement simply developed and evolved over the years. Each one provided what was beneficial to the other. And so a woman found security and, and uh, provision from a man. A man found uh, family and companionship from a woman. And so they just decided to live together. But that simply evolved over time. Now, the, the implication of that is this that there are no real rules for family. And so family is simply the accidental development that took place over time. Well, then we can change family as our needs change and as our practices change. Well, there's no real rules to govern the family. We can make changes and alter the family as our needs change over time. And that kind of thinking has led people today to question 
maybe even to deny outright what's called the nuclear family, a man and a woman living together and raising their own children, living together, married together, married to each other, and then raising their own children. So it's not uncommon today to find people questioning that, and even denying that that's the best arrangement. Well, what we want to do is, as we try to shape our thinking by Scripture, again, go to Scripture, go back to the beginning, and see how God designed it and God arranged it. And we know that's going to be best. Remember, we talked about how God gives us instruction for our good. And so what God says about the family and God's design for the family is really for our good. It's what's best for us. And so go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and we'll find the first family being designed and instituted by God. In Genesis chapter 1, we've noted in verses 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so God creates the man and the woman. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we find more detail about that. And so Genesis 2 and verse 7, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so God created the man and uh, formed him out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living being. But we read a little bit further in Genesis 2 and verse 18, we find that the man is alone, and that's not a good situation. God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is suitable for him. There were no suitable companions for the man. There was not anybody really like the man among everything that God created. And so no other creature was really suitable for the man to be his partner, his companion. And so God saw that, and the man himself saw that. And so God creates from the man's rib a woman. And so verse 22 says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. And so here's someone like me. And so bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Here's someone who is like me, a female version of me. And so she's suitable since she's like me, another human being, well then, we can be companions, we can be partners. And so in verse 24, the Lord says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so now you have a man and a woman, and God brings the woman to the man, and she becomes his wife, and they live together as one. They're committed to each other as husband and wife. They become one flesh. They're bound together as one. So the two now, in a sense, are one. From the outset, they are given instruction. In the very beginning, God is instructing them or giving them direction. In verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2, they are to cling to each other. The man is to be joined to his wife, to cling to her and they become one flesh. And so there's there's instruction, isn't there? I intend for you two to be one. No longer two, but one flesh. 
in the words of Jesus. There are other instructions as well. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. More instruction. It's God's intent for the husband and wife to have children, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And as we read in Genesis a little bit further, we find out that they do that. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, the man had relations with his wife Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain, and he said, I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. And so they are following the instruction. They are being fruitful and multiplying and fill the earth. Cain is the firstborn. Abel is born next. Seth is born next. When we get to Genesis chapter 5, we find that Adam had many sons and daughters. And uh, the first five verses there. And so here we have the first family. You have a man and a woman. They're husband and wife. They're, to, they're bound to each other. They're to become one flesh. They love each other. They're committed to each other. They treat each other with respect and with dignity. And uh, they do what is mutually beneficial for each other. And into that relationship, there are born children, sons and daughters. A man, a, a husband, a father, a woman, a wife, a mother, and their children. And so what we find is that the family is of divine origin. And so it's not simply the random or accidental, uh, the, the result of a random and accidental process development over a long period of time. God, God began this. He instituted it. It was this way from the beginning. Now what I want to do in the rest of our time is just draw out four principles from what we read about the creation of the first family that I think will have some application today. The first one of those is that marriage, as God designed it, involved a man and a woman. You can see that. If we follow Jesus' A model going back to the beginning to see how God arranged things. What we see is that God arranged for marriage to be between a man and a woman. Of course, in our world, many advocate for same-sex marriage. In fact, the Supreme Court has recently issued a decision that every state has to recognize same-sex marriage. So two people who are of the same sex get married in another state and move to, a, to this state. That state has to recognize, at least acknowledge, in a legal way, what, what uh, the marriage has taken place in another state. And so, and so in our culture, many advocate for same-sex marriage. A man may have a husband. A woman may have a wife. And we're exposed to this way of thinking, oh, wow, just in many, many, many uh, different uh, media outlets, and the shows that we watch or the talk shows we listen to or the news stories or commentary, even school children are exposed to the idea that a family might consist of children and same-sex parents. And so we find little children saying, well, in this family there are two mothers. In this family there are two fathers. <laughs> and so our, our children are being influenced to think in that way. About 0.009% of all marriages are same-sex marriages. I use that word marriage in quotation marks. Not, not 9%, <laughs> not 0.9%, 0 
9%. Now, you know I'm not a math whiz, but I think that's nine one-thousandths of 1%, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. And yet the country demands we approve and accept it and not speak out against it, even though only a, a minute, <laughs> a minuscule segment of society uh, is, uh, participates in it. Again, though many people think this way, it's not a biblical way to think about marriage and family. The scriptures teach that homosexual conduct is sinful. We talked about that a pretty good bit last week. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 18 and in verse 22, we find one passage that condemns homosexual behavior. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination. We said also in chapter 20 of Leviticus in verse 13, the behavior of Sodom is considered exceedingly grave. Genesis 18 and verse 20. So notice that, exceedingly grave. And actually, when, when God wants to strongly condemn the immorality of a society, it's Sodom that uh, he draws the comparison to. We've been studying from the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah chapter 1 uh, strongly condemns the behavior of God's people. And he says in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah long since destroyed. And so what he's saying is, your, your, your behavior... Is, is very much like the behavior, as immoral as the behavior of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're sort of the, the standard of immoral behavior, as we find it in, in Scripture. It's condemned in the New Testament as well. We looked at Romans chapter 1 last week, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6 also very clearly condemns homosexual behavior. Do, not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminate or homosexuals or thieves or covetous or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We want to think biblically. Okay, that's, that's the whole point of our lessons. Shaping our thinking by Scripture. Thinking biblically about the world around us and about ourselves. Now, not everybody thinks this way. And we might be out of step with the way many people think. But if the Word of God is truth, which Jesus says that it is, sanctify them in the truth, your Word is truth. Jesus says that. That ought to mean something to us who are Christians, what Jesus thought of Scripture. If Jesus defines Scripture as truth, the source of truth, well then we understand that what Scripture says about this issue or any other issue is truth. So, marriage is God designed it. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's how God designed it to be, going all the way back to the beginning. Secondly, marriage as God designed it involved one man and one woman. So, not only a man and a woman, but one man and one woman. And so, go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and following. God saw that it was not good that the man should be alone. And so, He created some women. No. <laughs> No, no, he didn't create some women for him to be with. He created one woman for the man. And that suggests to us that God's intent for marriage is one woman for one man. And the notion that he might have other women along with the woman that God created for him, just not found in the text. 
And so what God established would suggest to us that polygamy, a man having multiple wives, just not according to God's will. That's, that's, that's uh, uh, in, uh, not consistent with the way God designed it. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 says, It's good for a man not to touch or have sexual relations with a woman, but because of immorality, each man is to have his own wife. Not wives, but his own wife. And so that singular would suggest to us that God's made a provision for a man and for a woman to avoid sexual immorality, to commit to each other in marriage, legitimate outlet for their, for their needs. In Mark chapter 10, the Pharisees came to Jesus with a question about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for every cause? That's a situation that we find in our world today. Divorce for, for many causes, really for, for just about any causes, any cause. And so that was the Pharisees' question. And Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And they responded. They talked back and forth for a little bit. But Jesus says in verse 6, From the beginning of creation God made them male and female. And for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. And so God has joined them together. Now man could separate them, but they're not to separate them. So when God joins together a man and a woman in marriage, man is not to separate them. They're, they're not to divorce. And so God's design is for one man and one woman to be committed to each other in marriage for life. Now there are other passages in the New Testament that bear on this idea as well. Luke chapter 16 and verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife, Jesus says, and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Pretty plain, isn't it? A man divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery. That's a violation of God's intent for marriage. A woman who divorces her husband and marries another commits adultery. The second part of that, he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? There's not anything very difficult about that particular passage. Now, there are other statements that uh, have to do with this issue as well. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, New American Standard Bible says, immorality, infidelity, uh, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so here we have an exception to the rule. The rule is, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, except if he were to divorce her for the cause of her immorality, her infidelity in, within the marriage. Another passage that speaks to that is Matthew chapter 19, parallel passage to Mark chapter 10, but in verse 9, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So find that exception again. The rule that Jesus lays down, very consistent with what we find in the beginning, 
One man for one woman bound together for life. And whoever violates that rule, well, the consequences are severe. There's an exception to that. God allows, and the exception is divorce for the cause of infidelity. So the Scriptures teach that marriage is to last a lifetime. The teaching of Christ doesn't allow for divorce and remarriage except for the cause of fornication. Again, the consequences of violating this teaching are they're serious. They're serious consequences. The third principle I'll uh, extract from this opening account of the family, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, is that children are born into this, into this union. The family expands. We saw that the instruction of God was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See that in Genesis 9 and verse 7 as well. Noah comes out of the ark. Things kind of have a new beginning. Noah's sort of a new Adam, so to speak. And he's told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sometimes a husband and wife will adopt a child into, that, into their family. And they love that child in every way as if he or she were their own biological child. And God so approves of this that He uses adoption to illustrate how He has brought us into His love and care as well. And so Ephesians chapter 1, we've been adopted as sons into the family of God. And so certainly has divine approval. The Scriptures indicate a natural affection exists among family members. And those, don't have this, those who don't have this natural affection come under the strong condemnation of God. Romans chapter 1, for example, in that long list of things that were being practiced by the Gentile world that separated them from God, among those were those who were unloving or those who did not have this natural affection. Verse 31, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving. Now, that's a rare word in the New Testament. We're familiar with some of the other words, agape, for example, phileo, for example. Well, this, is, this word is built on a, another, a different word for love. And this word points especially to the mutual love of parents for children. Not exclusively, but, but it is used especially for the mutual love between parents and children. So because of this natural love, the parents act in the best interest of their children. Literally, the children are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is my child. I have a natural love for this child. It's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I have a natural interest in the welfare of this child. And so I'm going to do everything I can to prepare this child to live as a successful adult himself or herself. Super important relationship, isn't it? Children learn from their parents how to be a good husband. Children learn from their parents how to be a good wife. Children learn from their parents how to be a successful, productive adult in their own right. And so there's so much, so much taught and learned uh, in this family relationship, which, which is why it is such an important relationship to God. This is the the basic building block, the fundamental building block for an orderly, productive society, the home. And so it's important that children are able to see as they grow and develop in the home, how, how should I behave? What kind of husband should I be? What kind of father should I be? 
How should I, how should I develop as a woman? How should I develop as a wife? We learn all of that in the home. And then the children learn that, and they repeat that to their children. As they marry, committed, loving relationships, they have children, they repeat the process. And so it's super important that we, uh, that we honor and practice the family as God originally designed it. If we stray from that, well then, again, the consequences are severe. And then finally, the last point I'll make is that there's order and organization in the family. Even from the beginning, there's order within the family unit. We're used to looking at a passage like Ephesians chapter 5 and talk about the order within the family, that the husband is the head of the wife and he's to give himself for her as Christ gave himself for the church. And the, the wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ and things like that. But, but Paul's teaching really only reflects what is implied from the very beginning. Now notice these things, or recall these things about uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Man is created first, and the woman is created as his helper. I'll make a help suitable for him. And so the man is created first, and the woman is created as his helper. Now, we might ought to say, you know, there, there's no... There's nothing degrading about that or dehumanizing about that. or that We're not to imply from that that the woman is somehow inferior to the man. Did you know that sometimes it's the superior that helps the weaker? No, God is the superior, and yet God is our helper. Sometimes the superior helps the weaker. And so there's, we should not imply or infer from that statement that God made the woman as a helper to mean that she is somehow inferior to him. That, because that, that's just an, an invalid uh, inference. It's a non sequitur. And so she's created for the man. Those are the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 8. When Adam and Eve sin, God approaches Adam for an explanation. Even though it was the woman that sort of led the man in sin, God approaches Adam for an explanation. What, what's going on here, Adam? Why would he approach Adam? Well, Adam's the leader. He's responsible for what happens. Now, Satan's trying sub to subvert that, isn't he? So he approaches the woman, and he entices the woman to take the lead. And so he's creating chaos. He's subverting uh, what God had intended. So. And so that suggests to us that there's order within the family. The man is responsible. And then if you look at Genesis chapter 5 and verse 2, maybe a passage we've overlooked in this regard, God created them male and female. He blessed them and he named them man. Some versions may say Adam, which simply means man. He named them man. You know, traditionally, up until recently, we, we've used the word man to refer to mankind in general. Now, that has some biblical precedent. And so you see, God created the male and female, and He blessed them, and He named them the male and female man. And so there's order in the family relationship, even, even in the beginning. The husband and father is, is the head. He lovingly leads, he sacrificially leads the family. 
He's responsible for the well-being of the family. The wife and mother is his partner. She supports him. She helps him. She lovingly submits to his lead. They work together as, as a team. And the parents then raise the children. Ephesians 6 and verse 4, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Whenever I think about this particular point, I can't help but think of statements from the book of Proverbs. And so, for example, if you look at Proverbs chapter 1 and uh, look at verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. So the, the father and the mother are working together to instruct their children. And so it's the parent's responsibility to instruct the children. We've talked about that already a little bit. And so that includes teaching them, disciplining them, providing an example for them to follow, advising them, counseling them, guarding them, protecting them, providing as best we can as parents what they will need to make their way in the world successfully. You think about it, parents don't like to think about it in this way sometimes. When that child is born, our responsibility is, is really to get that child ready to go out on their own and live successfully as an adult. And so, and so we've got little babies in the audience, little children. What's my job? My job is to prepare that child to live as an adult. We, we kind of like the children being at home, and we like that experience, and we hate to think about them leaving. Well, if we don't do our job, well, it may be disaster. My mother said, I <laughs> uh, kind of hate to say this, but you got them for about 18 years. That's just about right, isn't it? You got them for about 18 years, and then, and then they're off. Then they're, they're, they're out on their own. And it's us, up to us as parents to get them ready for that time when they step out on their own. And so, anyway, we need to do our job. If we don't, oh, man, it could be bad. Well, we've talked about family. We've talked about husbands and wives and children today. And we don't mean to suggest that people who are not married, and not everybody marries. And we don't mean to suggest that people who are not married or those with no children are unable to live quality lives. That, that just is not true, is it? And so a person can live his life or her life not married and still have a wonderful life, a quality life. And a couple, a husband and wife, may may go through the years and not have children and, and yet have a wonderful life and make tremendous contributions to the lives of those around them in their culture and in the church as well. And so, may no one ever think, <laughs> I'm not married, I really can't contribute much. I don't have children, well, I'm limited. No, no, even unmarried, and those with no children can make tremendous, tremendous contributions to, uh, to, to the good of those around us. I'll just say in closing, where, where the model that we've established from Scripture, husband, wife, married, committed to each other, mutual respect, treat each other with dignity, work together as a team, raising their children, teaching them what they need to know to make their way in the world, that repeats its, the process. Where, where that's the norm, where that's what most people do, well, they, the occasional exception can be accommodated, can it? And so here's a wife whose husband dies and she's got little children, but if everybody around them, husband and wife, that nuclear family we talked about, biblical family would be a better way to say it, well, then that, that exception can be accommodated. 
But where the family breaks down, the biblical family breaks down, and it's the exception rather than the rule. Now we've got problems. And I think we're seeing the fruit of that even in our culture as well. And so what God has designed for us is for our good. It's for our personal benefit, but even beyond that as well, the benefit to our community and culture. So what, what we want to do is think biblically, and we want to behave biblically as well. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we address you today as our Father. We know, Father, that you are a loving Father, that you are everything a loving Father should be toward his children, and we receive the benefit of that. You love us, you care for us, you provide for us, you protect us. And at times, Father, when we go astray, you discipline us and chasten us to correct us and bring us back in the way that we should go. Father, we are thankful that we can be your children and that you are our Father. Help us, Father, to be the members of the family that you would have us to be, that we would be the fathers that you would have us to be and husbands you would have us to be. We'd be wives and mothers that you want us to be, that we would be the children in those families that you would have us to be as well. We're thankful, Father, that you've arranged this family unit for our good and we enjoy the benefit of it, and we uh, uh, enjoy all the advantages that that brings to us. Help us, Father, not to be influenced by uh, the way the world thinks about family, but, but to stand squarely upon your word, the truth. We understand that it's for our good, and that it, we, will, we will enjoy all the benefit and advantages from, from doing it. Help us, Father, as we go out through the day today. Continue to provide for us. Draw us closer together to our own family members in love and mutual respect so that we might continue to, to be blessed in that way. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here